Welcome to today's edition of Make Her Space, a podcast about women who dare. Hear inspiring interviews with South Coast entrepreneurs and artisans who've carved out their own spaces and share the challenges and rewards of their often unexpected journeys. Brought to you by The Standard Times and SouthCoastToday.com. And now, here's your host, Barbara Lomonaco. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Maker Space, a podcast about women who dared. I'm your host, Barbara Lomonaco, and I am excited to be here with Laura Burkett, who um, is the creator of ArtSmart Productions, and you may know ArtSmart Productions through their main production, which is the Art Providence Show. Laura is also a designer and maker of leather goods. Um, welcome, Laura. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. Um, so I usually start this podcast, first of all, the listeners all want to know if we are utilizing our um, hashtag podcast with Prosecco. We do have some lukewarm Prosecco in the studio because that's our jam. Now, t- last time you may remember that I um, forgot the champagne flutes and we drank our Prosecco out of coffee cups. Today I broke one of the um, flutes, so I'm drinking out of a coffee cup. Laura, you're living in luxury. Well, I have a flute because I actually used to play the flute for many years. It's crazy. Yep, in high school, it's junior high, the whole thing. It's perfect. It's perfectly appropriate. We broke some glass. That's the best beginning uh, to a new relationship. Are we Just married? break some stuff. Like... <laughs> um, so I often tell listeners as well how we met. I was at the Newport Jazz Festival, minding my own beeswax, selling some skincare, honey and vine, and Laura was working, what was your job at um, Jazz Festival other than introducing yourself to me? Well, when I was in your booth, I wasn't really working that much, <laughs> but I was um, coordinating the artists and makers at that show, just sort of helping exactly out. Exactly right, and suddenly we just started talking, and it was ridiculous. We couldn't stop talking, and it was like, okay, we both have to get to work. And then, oh, one more thing. And the things that we had in common is that we both lived in Italy. Um, we both had uh, sort of uh, executive jobs and then decided to m- work more in the creative lane. I have since sort of now have another day job, executive day job, but I'm still in the makerspace. And uh, we just, oh, and Kentucky, which is ridiculous. So Laura's from Somerset, Kentucky. I lived in Kentucky for 20 years. We just can hardly stand ourselves. Uh, So many things in common. So Laura, I um, usually start by asking guests to talk a little bit about their main hustle as a maker. Um, I was reading a little bit about your work that emerged while you were in Italy, which was making a kind of before people had hip laptop bags, you were creating something called the Zaino. Do you use the Italian pronunciation, or does it call something else in English? Zaino? Zaino. It's very similar Zino. in Italian. And, I mean, yeah, um, which was this beautiful leather laptop bag, and then that evolved into lots of other things. Um, and so we'll get to Italy, but I want to actually start with... Um, Art Providence show and how you got involved in that and can you talk a little about the, your range of duties with that and its genesis? Well to get to the Art Providence show inception we do kind of have to go back to Italy because, oh, let's and, do. and leather bags so really what was happening and this is well after the corporate world I um, actually I was in living in London in a corporate role for Coors Brewing Company and at the end of that year, it was a one-year assignment. And you were in marketing. Is I was right? in marketing yeah. and brand management. And at the end of that year, I decided to take a year off and travel. 
So part of that year, I went to Italy to learn to speak Italian because I love foreign language and Italian to me was and still is the most beautiful language on the planet. <clears throat> Excuse me. I agree. And you were in Umbria. And right? I was in Umbria, oh. in Perugia. So through a series of coincidences, well, I had gone to Perugia and enrolled at the Università per Stranieri, which is a university for foreigners there. And they teach a lot of foreigners the Italian language. Yeah. And so while I was there, it was a month-long program. And through a series of coincidences, I met people that um, own and, <clears throat> and run study abroad programs for American college students. So like EF I, Tours, those kinds of people. No, I, it's a much smaller company, but it is it is like that, and they're accredited, so you can you know get get college credit when you go to these programs. So and I took students to Perugia, so you know you know our paths have probably crossed at some point. Isn't that nuts? So you know Perugia, and you know that it's an Etruscan town, even predating Roman. So it is it's a fascinating, beautiful place. And so while I was there, I, I met this gentleman that owns this study abroad program for American college students, and he needed some help writing a marketing plan. So I was ready to do some freelance work. I helped him do that. He liked what I did, and and coming out of that, he offered me a full-time job. So that's how I ended up with full-time work, living in Italy, you know, and working for a study abroad program. But while I was there, I became obsessed with, well, really everything Italian, but particularly the leather, the design and leather that I was seeing there. But because I was also doing a lot of traveling at the time, I was paying attention to how people use their bags, you know, in and out of airports, you know, in particular, going through security. And I was always this, and still am, kind of the person that looks at a bag, and I think it's absolutely beautiful and gorgeous and well-made and wonderful material, but if it just did this one thing a little differently, it would be so much more useful. Mm. And so that's how the Zino came into being. I, you know, Of course, backpacks exist, and leather backpacks exist, and, and some beautiful ones in Italy, and so I decided I wanted something like what I was seeing, but I wanted it to be to be padded and to be, you know, built particularly for a laptop. So that was a fairly a fairly new idea. You didn't see a lot of those in two thousand two and two thousand three, which is when I was doing this. So so I started doing that while I lived in Italy and I went and I went to a local cobbler and asked him to help me, you know, de- develop the initial prototypes. Was that Sergio? That was Sergio. Wow, bravo. I did my homework. So you sort of became ultimately an apprentice to him. Well, yes and Informal, no. informal. Well, I would like to say that, but he, no, not exactly. Um, <laughs> not at all, really. <laughs> I mean, not at all, really, no. I mean, I, it was just really interesting. Like, there are certain rules in how you behave, especially as a foreign woman in Italy. <laughs> so I would have to go, every time, every week I would go in to, like, work with him on this project, I would have to go in and sort of stand in the front of the shop and wait while he finished his other, you know, with his, of course, with his other customers and working on other shoes and whatever, but I would just kind of stand there quietly in the corner and wait and wait and wait. And then finally I would get acknowledged and then it would be the whole, so we'd, we'd go through the project and, and he would, you know, okay, so what do we want to do with this part? What do we want to do with that? All in Italian. Mm. He knew no English, which was great for my Italian. Wow. And that evolved. I mean, I could write a book just about that era and that time with Sergio because he was this kind of, you know, this, this, older guy and he and his wife and son ran this ran this cobbler shop and they were kind of shy at first but over this year or so that I was working with them I got to know the whole family and at one point I remember 
I was in a car in February in a snowstorm with Sergio, and he was, we were driving up to Florence together, to the outskirts of Florence, and he was going to show me the best places to source leather and findings and, you know, all of these things. Just totally, you know, took me under his wing. And, and I remember thinking, what am I going to talk with Sergio about? Is my Italian good enough to talk, you know, for a whole car ride up to Florence? And, you know, and, and it was fine, and it was wonderful, and it was just another page in, you know, in the adventure that, that was, you know, having, having work made in Italy. So those designs evolved, and I was adding other styles along with that. And this is a very long-winded pathway to get to Art Smart Productions, but um, when I came back to the U.S., actually, I went to Barcelona for four years with the same company. I was asked to go and help set up a new academic program, and I ended up directing that. So I worked in academia for a while. Um, By the way, this is an aside that the listeners need to know about. It's legal to be completely naked in Barcelona. And I know this because I was um, visiting there, and there were women who were um, sex workers, as we call them, uh, so hired for those things, and they would have shoes in a purse. I was impressed that they had like shoes in a purse. It was a little perplexing, but also the marketplace, is it La Rambla, or the big marketplace? There was a man who would like make the rounds and he just had on sneakers. And I brought this to the attention of local people and they go, oh, yeah, he's, he's, it's legal here. So I just needed everyone to know that. Part of the landscape. Part of the- ex- accessorizing is so important in Europe, <laughs> as you know. So you have to make sure you have the right shoes, handbags. Yeah, I saw them all and all of it. So anyway, continue. You were living so, in Barcelona and you were... So I was doing this in Barcelona. I was still having my bags made in Italy and it was get, starting to get cumbersome because I still had... It was a full-time job again in Barcelona and I was eventually directing that program. And so when I... I ended up coming back to the U.S. in late 2008. I moved to Rhode Island from Barcelona. <laughs> I just have to laugh. And I wanted to bring my leather, I wanted to produce my designs in the U.S. I was very dedicated to the idea of helping bring manufacturing back to the U.S. And especially leather in this part of the U.S. I mean, the Blackstone River Valley, I mean, it's a very, that's part of the heritage of that area. Mm -hmm. And how were you selling in Italy? So in Italy... I did have a website. I was selling some of my stuff in person, like people would note friends or friends of friends would find out I was making this, so they would they would want to buy it. And also in um, a couple of high end home furnishings and accessory shops. So mm. really piecemeal, and it's been piecemeal actually quite a bit. So when I came back to the U.S. and I thought, well, I want to now that I'm going to live in the U.S. again, I want to have my bags made here, and that's. That's tough to do um, if you don't have large quantities. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I have, over the years, set up my own studio and started and actually learned a lot more of the making myself. You know, initially I was just sort of designing conceptually and aggregating resources, if you will, to get the pieces made. And then, you know, over these years, I've become more and more involved in the making because I would like to have all of my production in-house under my own roof. Wow. Because you can outsource, obviously, production, but that sometimes is difficult in terms of minimum order quantities and controlling your quality and things like that. So... So that's so. This was what I was doing. I left the corporate world. I came when I came back from Barcelona. I got back into the corporate world for a few years. I worked for Hasbro Corporate and I worked for Foster Grant, and I was always doing this leather thing on the side. That was a side hustle, and I just I always wanted to give dedicate my full time to that. But it was scary. I mean, it's it's hard to give up a steady paycheck, as you know. That's what this whole podcast is about, right? It is. Yeah. So I. what convinced you to make the leap? Like, was there a defining 
moment. You always imagine someone in a workplace like taking their accordion file folders and just flinging them in the air and you're like, I'm done. Um, But was there a sort of something where you said, you know what, I just really feel pulled in this direction? Was it the fact that your, your art was calling you? It was a combination of things. Yes, my art was calling me. The, I mean, the entire time I still, after living in Italy, it, that just remained with me. It was very much a part of my psyche. And mm. I, I was just, I, I had so much passion when I would talk to people about that project. And everyone that I met, even when I was back in the corporate world, said, what are you doing? You need to be going, you need to be making those bags. They're amazing. And you're so passionate when you talk about it. So I think there was this undercurrent of knowing that maybe the corporate space wasn't the best it wasn't the best place for me. It wasn't the perfect fit. I had one one colleague in one of these jobs that said, you are like a caged bird. What are you doing mm-hmm. in the corporate world? So I think it was <clears throat> a combination of, you know, conversations and just listening to myself and knowing that I, you know, I, I have a business side and an entrepreneurial side, but I certainly have a creative artistic side as well. And so I felt like that would be the way to, to satisfy all of those needs. And so I, I, Went out, went out on my own a few years ago, and that's when I, you know, put together my studio, invested in a lot of equipment, and um, and and got it going. And so then I started selling my work um, at juried craft, um, fine craft shows like um, the Society of Arts and Crafts, the Craft Boston show that they do annually twice a year. That show is amazing. It's, it's amazing. It's yeah. really a fantastic show. And the American Craft Council, they are one of the oldest craft institutions in the U.S., and they run very well-respected shows. And, you know, from the outside, when I would go to those shows, I would just dream about being ex- my work being accepted to those shows, and, oh, what would I do? That would be amazing if I could get in to these, to these shows, and I finally did. But guess what? It's hard to make a living making and marketing and selling your own work. And, and especially at so many of my guests, and I think I've experienced this as a very small-time maker – to make your product is one thing and to have the creative inspiration and then implement and execute the idea. Then there's your ordering supplies and your bookkeeping and your marketing and attending shows to sell your things and your web presence. It is so overwhelming to be a one person show. I've experienced that. Many of my guests have experienced that. And I think that we we have this idea of the liberation of I want to live in this creative energy that I have this impulse, I need to fulfill this creative impulse. But boy, and I know a lot of your energy is on talking with people about marketing and that whole sort of way you need to frame the entrepreneurial spirit it's daunting. And sometimes we're not prepared for the business end. We're like, I just want to make my thing. But there's, there's that whole other side, right? There is that whole other side. And I learned that when I switched over to making and designing these bags, I realized I don't really want to do the marketing. I mean, I know how to do that. But, you know, I resented having to be on social media or thinking what's going to be the next big Instagram post. I, I just... That's not what I want to do. I really want to focus on the designing and the making. But, you know, you, you have to do what you have to do. So so I was doing this and, and going to these shows and selling my work and not really making enough to, to make ends meet. So I was in this place in 2017 where I was like, what am I going to do? And I, am I going to go back to the corporate world? I mean, I needed, you know, I need to beef up the paycheck a little bit. And I went to the studio of a, a jeweler friend, a RISD alum, who 
I said, I'm going to come and visit you, Sue, because you're so successful running your business and you're making your jewelry. It's beautiful. You're doing all of the pieces that we're just talking about. It's all, it's amazing. And I'd like for you to help me understand how, what's the formula? What's the magic formula? And so we were just, you know, talking about what worked for her. And through that conversation, she just casually mentioned that she said, well, you know, one of the big shows that we did, it was a big source of income every year. We, we did this RISD annual holiday sale in the convention center and it's been going on for 20 some odd years. And, and they just they're they're not doing it anymore and all of the artists really still want to have this show they still you know they still count on the show in december and they like it to happen but nobody has time to organize it you should just organize it and i said yeah i should let's go talk to RISD. can you get a meeting with RISD? let's that's go talk so to them crazy. and so that's kind of how art smart productions was born we went to RISD and you know, to understand, you know, A, if they were really, you know, discontinuing the show, B, I wanted to understand why they were discontinuing it, and if, if it were anything to do with bandwidth, that maybe we could help them with that, and they could still continue to have the show, but we would, you know, do some of the heavy lifting operationally, and they were very gracious, and they said, no, you know, we won't, we're, we're moving in another direction, they were working on other projects to, to help out their uh, international and global RISD alumni community. And so they were gracious about the transition. We said, we're going to take, we're going to pick it up where you left off in terms of, you know, the, sa- the same footprint, the timing and the location of the show. We still want to have RISD alumni and we want to honor the legacy in terms of the quality of work that's represented. So we would like to have a juried show. We'll rebrand it the way, you know, the way we want to rebrand it. And it will be a juried show, but it will be open to other to artists of other backgrounds, not just RISD alumni, including RISD alumni, but not limited mm-hmm. to that. And so it worked really well. It was very well received, and and so we're continuing that, and we're in our third year. I just looked at the list of artists that you have for this coming show, and I, first of all, would like to make more money so that I can buy all the things, because (laughs) unbelievable. Can you talk a little bit about how the jury process works for a show um, like this? Because it seems that the artists that you have, I mean, it's remarkable talent how are those decisions made because it would be agonizing I would imagine well it is agonizing and that's why we do get jurors involved and we try to pull we pull in experts from various fields whether you know whether it's the head of the textile department at RISD Mm -hmm. or it's a a local you know metalsmith and maker or um, actually for all three years and hopefully we'll have her ongoing the chief curator of the Fuller Craft Museum in Brockton Massachusetts is one of our jurors and has been just a wonderful ally in terms of helping guide and steer, you know, from a curatorial standpoint. And so that is really tough, but it's, it's removed a step from, from me anyway. So yeah. it's, it's hard because sometimes you're, you know, we only have so many spaces and you might be waitlisting someone that has a really high score and, yeah. or do you need to balance the show? We can't have a show with 75% jewelers, which mm-hmm. we probably could with the amount of, of jewelry applications we receive, because this is, well, number one, jewelry is a very popular category in these shows. And number two, Providence is an area that is obviously known for jewelry. And I think RISD also, there are a lot of talented jewelers that come out of, of that RISD background. And so it all kinds of, it all kind of, you know, adds up to a lot of jewelry applications for the show. So, but it is, it's tough, but. And I'm curious, if you had to point to one thing in your background 
as someone who worked in marketing and corporate that has lent itself really well to the work that you're doing now in organizing a mammoth show like that. What would it be? What skills have translated the most? And maybe what was unexpected that translated? I think probably the most valuable skill is, for me, communication and even written communication. I, I, well, from the start, we really had our sights set on helping the artist because I come from this background of knowing how hard it is to make make a living selling your work. And so I really was focused on the artist and I wanted to make sure that they felt very well taken care of. So from in the very first year that we did this, I was constantly communicating with these artists Well, a lot of emails, a lot of updates, a lot of responding to questions over and over the same questions, questions, you know, sometimes people didn't see stuff that we may have sent. And so, but a lot of, a lot of communication, I think that that is a skill that's, you know, invaluable in anything that you do when when you're dealing with people. And, and we've gotten a lot of appreciation, you know, from that. I, I think I felt good about my communication skills, the surprising piece I don't know the answer to that. Well, that's okay. I mean, it may um, come to you this next year where you're like, I can't believe something I, and sometimes it's really a matter of building an infrastructure. When you, when you create a marketing plan, it has phases and you roll it out in a particular way. And I think that sometimes the art world needs some systemiz- systematization. Did I just create a word? Maybe. Maybe, Needs to be systematized. And um, so it might be that. But um, it's interesting to think about so many women that have sat in your chair who had different backgrounds, whether it was pharmaceuticals or marketing or journalism and are in the art world. And the things that have translated are always (laughs) unexpected and weird, not necessarily what um, what you would imagine. I'm curious about, um, in terms of your own identity, as we have maker on one side, and I agree that Italy um, never really leaves you. So I think listeners know I lived in Italy on the island of Alicudi, and I taught in Florence and in Venice, and um, took students around Italy for, for many, many years, teaching classes there. There's something about the cadence of life in Italy that never really leaves you, like the nostalgia when you speak the language or when you eat a particular food. For me, it was Campari and pistachios at four o'clock in the afternoon, this little aperitivo where you just go, yes! Um, so when you think about the different um, identities that you have as running, running this show and supporting artists through that process and as a businesswoman and your identity as a maker, um, where do you find your balance and how do you balance that work with your own creative work? Well, balance is always a tough thing. It's interesting that you mentioned you know, your time living in Italy and one of the things that struck me about not only Italy but Spain and really you know, the European countries, it, it was work-life balance. And it really put into stark contrast how we live our lives in the US, especially in the corporate environment and it made it really hard. You know, The re-entry was really hard and when I went back into the corporate world and, and it was like, oh, so you have two weeks of vacation. You know, it, that, was, that was really tough and, and balance, um, yeah, balance is really hard, and it's, so when you're trained in that cult, that corporate environment, especially in some of the stressful ones, you you know what it's like to work sixty and seventy hour weeks, and you're able to do that. And so, so now that I'm doing things that are closer to wh- where my passion areas are, it's still hard to turn it off. When I'm working on Art Smart Productions and the Art Providence show, I, f- I feel such a 
Well, I mean, I, I really want to make sure that the artists are taken care of. So that's it's hard to balance. Like, I have not been able to get in my studio for the last two weeks because yeah. every time I get ready to go to the studio, I'm like, well, I need to send this communication. I need to let the artist know this, or I need to try to do this piece of marketing for the show. So I haven't figured out the balance piece <clears throat> entirely, and I don't. I think the identity question is is a very good question. It's always been a little bit of a challenge for me because. I, you know, in college, in undergrad, I went to a liberal arts school, and and I, Center College, as you oh, know, that's uh, right. the Transylvania yeah. Center story. Oh, gosh. So, you know, you're, I was interested in a lot of different things. I mean, I was a math major in college, but I almost had a double major with English, and I loved foreign language, and so I was kind of all over the map in the areas that I liked. So I feel like now, how many years later, that's in some ways translated into my into my real life because you see that I still have a very you know business analytical focus side and then I have this creative yeah. um, you know designer and, look this is what we try to cultivate with the liberal arts is to have intellectual curiosity about a lot of things and I think my question was um, in some ways wrong-footed because I do believe it's this very western dichotomy of work and your life, right? That, And we find this in Europe, and I'm not trying to glamorize that, oh, everything's so much better in Europe where you get a siesta and two months vacation, but it is kind of true. Um, but that sometimes you're so passionate about a project that you're working on that you may spend 80 hours a week on it, but you love it because you're growing something creative. Then there are other times where you're That's working. Flow. Yeah, it is flow. You're right. in your flow. And I spent eight weeks doing nothing but honey and vine. And it was amazing. I got into retail stores and I developed new products and I reached new audiences. And I worked more hours than I did as a vice president in higher education because I couldn't stop myself. I couldn't take a break because it was my baby and I was so motivated to just do better and better and more and more and it was freaking exhausting so you kind of have to pump the, you, you have to self-modulate in some ways when it's your own baby and be like it'll be there tomorrow but the idea of letting down a customer is like uh-uh that is not gonna happen um, and, and for us it's the idea of letting down an artist I yeah. mean yes the people that come through the door at the show the attendees some may argue that's our end customer, but I really think of our customers as, as our artist, and I just don't. Oh, that's amazing. <clears throat> what a great perspective, and that you really are cultivating, you're giving them an arena um, in such an important way, and you're championing the, the work that they do, which is, I don't know, that's an amazing role. It's, it's easy to be passionate about that because we live that way. My partner and I live in a loft that we have so much of the, of the useful objects in our house are handmade by people that we know. We have quite a bit of art. That's just the way we live. And we and there's a story in each one of those objects. And every time I pick up a glass or I sit on a stool that was handmade, I'm thinking, how can somebody go to restoration hardware? Like Because I come from sort of the mass production and corporate background, I can't help but think, gosh, if we could just get one-tenth of one percent of the disposable income that's spent on home furnishings or apparel or jewelry or whatever that's spent in sort of the mass, in the mass market, if we could just bring that over to the handmade side... And that's where, you know, that connects with, obviously, the artists. They're providing those things. And I... It's changed the way that I think about everything after participating in, this, in the arts community. I always buy something from vendors that are on one side or the other. 
And I've said this in another podcast, but I met these just women who were so inspiring and gave me advice and support and you know your table collapses and the person next door to you comes and helps you pick it up that happened at jazz festival teenagers Mm -hmm. knocked an entire table over and the person next to me came running to help me pick everything up but when I buy something from them I used to joke oh I'm spending all the money I'm making I would not only remember that person I ended up um bringing things I bought from them, wearing them at my next show. And it was like this reminder of this amazing person who had my back. And And not only is it a reminder, you are supporting that economy that you're trying to be a part of. So this has become my great rationalization for shopping and for trading work. I don't feel bad anymore if I spend, you know, half of what I made at a show and put it back into that economy and I bought that guy's earrings or her, you know, yeah. or her dress or whatever. It's it's supporting all of that. Yeah. And it's really yeah. amazing and it is so incredibly meaningful. And I think listeners don't know that I work at RISD now because we've referenced RISD. So in full disclosure, um, I have an executive job there now and my biggest fear is that I'm going to buy every student's artwork because I'll know the story and I'll know the student and I will be eating beans out of a can on Waterman Street. (laughs) But um, it really, and then I see people, you know, approach at a craft show bargain um, with a maker about, um, and it, I have such a visceral reaction to that. And I don't mean to sound elitist, but I want to say it is not a flea market. Do you know how many hours it took her to make that? Because I feel that about products I make. I'm like, that took so much time in the concept and the design and the the care that you put into everything that you make. And so um, it's, it's changed everything um, about the way I feel toward handmade um, products, for sure. Um, I want to ask you, I, I ask every guest this when, um, and we talked about this a little bit before we started, and you're like, is she going to ask me that? I am wondering when you kind of made the leap into a different kind of life, um, giving up in some ways this steady paycheck and a known quantity, right? You had a certain status in the corporate world, and that's what you did. Um, and you pulled, you pulled the trigger on that and said, I'm going to go do this other thing that may or may not work. And it may or may not be maybe for a little while may last a long time. Um, What were the biggest rewards of doing that? And what made you um, a little more anxious or worried? And where did the scales fall on that? One of the things that I noticed early on after I, after I left the corporate world, just some physical things about my life, right? The fact that I was sleeping better um, was one. One thing that happened one morning I was in the shower and I remember looking at the drain and saying, well, that's weird. There's not really very much hair in the drain. Like, <laughs> for real, I realized how much stress like it it changed so much. I was like oh that's not normal when you have a big fistful of <laughs> hair that's in the drain like so I so check lo- mark for less hair loss yes so that the that kind of anxiety and, and stress associated with a corporate world that dissipated relatively quickly but as you can imagine you know eventually it's replaced with okay well, it's t- kind of tough to make up that kind of paycheck in, in this sort of environment. So mm-hmm. um, I think the two things that I was not prepared for were um, lack of structure and isolation. 
And those those two things were kind of tough for me because mm-hmm. I, I do better with structure, so you kind of have to self-impose it, and that's that's a little bit of a challenge. And um, the isolation, you know, I listened to you in one of your other podcasts, um, I believe with Katrina Meehan talking mm-hmm. about the same thing. You know, it's, it's really tough when you're used to being around other people and working and exchanging ideas. It's kind of tough when you... It's when just you. When, when it's just you. And so to find that balance has been a little bit tough because it's also hard for me to go to a coffee shop and listen to the, you know, all the sounds of a coffee shop when it's much quieter, you know, in your home or in your studio. So those kinds of things um, are a little bit different. I think one thing that I wasn't expecting from a marketing standpoint, I, I never realized that, you know, in a, I remember in one particular brand management role, I think the marketing budget for this particular line was just under a million dollars for, you know, the global, um, the, you know, the, the global side of the marketing. And so you're, you just do what you do. I mean, there's anyway, so that's, you know, you gain the tools to be able to, to spend that money in the right way to help your brands move, uh, move in the marketplace. And I didn't realize that it would be just as much work to apply a tiny little budget in a tiny little market, a single so marketplace. It is just as much, it, or not, if not more, work. It's I mean, just scale, and it's not, isn't it? And it doesn't feel like a tiny budget. It feels like a very big budget because it's a very big portion of, you know, of, of the overall budget. So it's, uh, it's interesting when you're, you know, you're really dialing into the, to the granular details of what you were, you know, someone else was doing, you know, out in the out in the local markets when you're in a global brand management position. So unbelievable. That's That's fascinating and really gives you an idea of um, perspective. In the time that I had away from higher education, I um, dealt with the isolation of, because I was just like in a frenzy of making products day and night. I made sure to schedule lunch dates with other female makers and they were kind of mentoring sessions for all my friends who had lunches with me I wasn't using you you were mentoring me but a lot of the women that have been in this podcast under the pretense of interviewing them pre-interviews for the podcast I had to have that face-to-face time because I just was in a vortex of intensity with my own process and products and you just have to come up for air that's the hardest part right when you're self-paced if you have tendencies toward being obsessive and a worker, you won't come up for air. That's right. And um, I think I probably I, imagined that women who were had left corporate jobs to become makers were like having this leisurely, like, and it's true that it's less stress, but there's a new stress that you put on yourself right. maybe. And I think a lot of times we don't assign the same value to to that time so let's say you take an hour and a half for example and you go and meet this person for lunch who is who has valuable information to share with you it may spawn a new idea it sort of gets these creative juices flowing that may not have happened if you were just in that you know in that rhythm so when you break out of that and take that time I mean that that's how the art providence show happened Remember, I had got you know. I went over to this to this friend, the to, jeweler. To, I went to the jeweler and I said, I want to come to your studio in Warren, and I want to talk about how you do what you do. And that that was me coming up for air, and also trying to get information and try to you know understand from other people who were successful. And then one thing leads to another, and 
<laughs> now we're it. producing an art show. And thing. one of the other themes that happens a lot in this podcast, someone asked me, well, why are you just interviewing women? And the reason for that is, one, I want to champion the important entrepreneurial work that women are doing. And we sometimes have to use back channels to get access to structures of power and relationships that aren't as available to women. Um, But I think that the other thing is the fabric of the networks that we create through these conversations that happen in a hallway or while you're on the way to somewhere and you meet another maker and you start exchanging your stories and everybody has this fascinating trajectory. Like there are no linear paths. There are no linear paths. Even um, an architect that I interviewed who went to RISD and that's what she studied and that's what she does. Well, she has this funky retail shop, right? So there's always these detours. And I find that intersection so compelling and interesting and nonlinear. And yet, we have a lot of social pressures to be linear, right? You studied that to do that. And then the pressure from the people in the jobs that others used to have of really, oh, you just bailed on life. <laughs> and, uh, and it's not that right, you're doing a different thing. So um, it's fat part of this podcast that's amazing is women seem to have these really textured stories. And much more so, I think, my, or mine, I'm only speaking about my story, but th- than I would have had in the corporate world. I mean, I remember the first time I did Craft Boston with my line of leather bags, and I was astounded. It was like, I was like, what has happened? These are my people. Where have these people been? I have been sitting in gray corporate cubicles for 20 years, not realizing that this this world existed and this very rich network, in very textured network. And none of these artists at these show ever say, "What you studied math to be able to do this, you'll never hear that." Right. And that's part of what I love about Isn't that. Isn't it amazing? It's just, it is. It's incredible. Yeah. It's your tribe. It's, it's that you tribe. find the tribe and. Um, and that is why I do this podcast. It's all these women who are so cool that I want to share it with other people. I just think, oh, you have to meet her. And because we're all crazy with our schedules, and I can't, sometimes I get everybody together, but I'm like, well, this is a way for you to, everybody gets to meet you. So um, I want to talk a little bit as we wrap up about um, the Art Providence show and also where people can find um, your leather work. So can you tell us a little bit about that? I can. So the Art Providence Show, this is actually a big piece of news for this year. We have moved the show up by, the dates up by a month. It traditionally was in the first week of December, and we have moved it up to November 8th through 10th this year. And we have an opening sort of first peak at the work between 5 and 8 on Friday the 8th. We have a bit of a happy hour between 5 and 6. And that's going to be very exciting. And then the show hours are 10 to 6 on Saturday, November 9th, and 10 to 4 on Sunday, November 10th. Do you know off the top of your head how many artists you have? Right around 150. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. That's huge. It is huge. And it's and it's it's a few fewer than we've had in the past, and that was also part of the design and intention because we want to – we felt like this size show would be a little more right size for the size of the city of Providence. And also we didn't want, we wanted to balance out, better balance the categories in the show. So, I mean, it's unfortunate, unfortunate when you have a list of, you know, you have a wait list of artists who would love to be in the show and their scores and their work 
you know, very, very good. But you just, I want to make sure that the show is healthy and productive and, and also very good for shoppers, you know, that they they can come around and, and be able to see everything within the couple of hours that they may have to see the show. But it's still, you know, comparatively speaking, a very big show. And that's the challenge of curating, right? That's what you have, your responsibility is to create a cohesive, balanced show that provides shoppers um, with a varied experience. But I would imagine that You'd, it would be torturous to make those decisions. So it's good that you didn't have to. Leave it to the jurors. Right. And then where can people find um, your work? They can find my work on com and by sending me an email. And Do you do custom work if somebody wants something that's in your wheelhouse? At this time, I don't do a lot of custom work. It just depends on what the project is. You know, I... Th- Sometimes it involves creating a new design, and, and it's tough because the development, the design development process is months in the making, yeah. months and hours yeah. and resources. And so when someone says, hey, will you make this brand new thing for me? I'm like, well, I could, but it, you're, you're asking for a new pattern, a new design, a new develop, all, yeah. all of the 160 hours of work, right? Yeah. Right. And yeah. so then, you know, when you start to talk about pricing, that usually... <laughs> gets tabled saved for another time yeah so people can check you out on the website yes they can excellent and possibly at the art providence show as well i did i did have a booth i I like to have a booth in my own show because i want to have that experience i want i want that ground level experience of of being in my booth at least part of the time it's hard and see it through the artist's eyes right correct love it so we'll we'll see if there's if there's room and if there's time I'm, i'm hoping to do that Excellent. Um, thank you so much for being part of this podcast. Thank you for speaking I cannot me. believe I met somebody who has a southern accent, who lived in Italy, and um, is in this uh, makerspace. It's crazy. Small I, world. I, I have the best guests ever. Um, thank you so much for listening, everybody. And stay tuned for next week's episode of Makerspace. We'll see you next time. That's this week's episode of Makerspace. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you.